Words, they get golly hard when they jumble, jumping over hurdles, slowing verbs like a turtle, murking fool, like squirtle and cake boo. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. Flip the coin, toss, it's draws, I'm out of loss. How my brains get busted, slinging letters into couplets, muck up the subjects, paragraph the punch. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ellie Newman, and this is That Got Me Thinking. My guest today is Tally Abacassis of the podcast First Day Back. I heard Tally's podcast, and that got me thinking about making choices. One of my first days in law school, I remember my contracts professor explaining that when a contract is broken, you can't sue or be compensated for damages from the road not taken. I've been thinking about how we make choices, frame them, justify, rationalize, and often lament them, and the question as to how often our choices are based on authentic internal desires versus pressures from outside as to what we should do or should want, or even pressure from the inside for each of us to live up to an internal ideal we've adopted from the external world as to who we should be. Welcome, Tally, and thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm going to start by reading your podcast iTunes description. First Uh-oh. day, <laughs> it's good. First day back is a documentary podcast that follows filmmaker Tally Abacassis as she tries to return to her career after having kids. By turns serious, funny, and touching, first day back takes a real life look at motherhood, gender roles, work life balance, and mom freelancers by following Tally's story. And I'd like to jump backwards a bit, Tally, if you don't mind, to your career before the podcast, before marriage and kids, and sort of what that path looked like. Um, you're a documentary filmmaker. Uh, yeah. I just want to hear a little bit about what that career was like pre-family. Um, yeah, I, I came out of university, and um, I was really inspired by documentary. Um, I never really saw myself as a fiction filmmaker, uh, and so I just went headlong into that. And uh, my career was mostly, you know, I worked on Canadian films, uh that were aired on TV and at festivals. And I didn't do very hard-hitting kind of social justice type of films, but more slice-of-life explorations of little microcosms or uh, quirky characters, um, that kind of work. And was that something you'd been interested in early on in filmmaking and in, in documentary? And what, what kind of drew you to that? Um, I think I've just always been a person who talks to everybody. <laughs> the street, wherever I go. And I definitely am somebody who believes in that, um, in the expression, real life is stranger than fiction. And um, I I just, it really just felt like so many things in the real world are fascinating. And so I just wanted to dive into that. And when you talk to them, do you find yourself usually talking about them? Are you interested in getting their story? And I connecting in that way, understanding what they're all about? When you say them, you mean the people who... Yeah, the films? people that you're talking to on the street. Yeah. <laughs> the people that you always oh, yeah. find yourself talking to. Yeah, I think uh, I think I just enjoy connection. Um, and I feel like so often when you talk to people, there's an interesting story behind it, uh, behind them, rather. And what, I would, you know, sometimes I wonder, I mean... <laughs> I just uh, I just feel like when I read the newspaper, there's so many different things that I could make a film about because um, the world is full of the world is full of stories. The world is stories, and that tells you something about yourself. I think I notice that sometimes. Which are the stories? And even if I'm going, you know, online looking at the the paper there, uh, having to post or something, I go, oh, which of the ones do I click? What is it I want to know more about? You know, what does that say about who I am? I know what somebody said to me recently, most people are not interested in most things, and that most people are only interested in stories that revolve around death. Uh, sorry, sex or celebrities with death. I don't know where I got that from. Uh, sex and celebrities, and that you're sort of you're stuck if you don't have a story that revolves around that because those are the widest common interests. Oh, but I think you're right to throw death in there because now you've covered all the bases, right? Sex, celebrity, yeah. and death. It's, every yeah, story has to have something to do sort of with one of those. Yeah, so one, the, oh, but I felt like that's ridiculous because I'm interested in so many other things. But then I see it with other people around me, and it's true. Not everybody is interested in everything. <laughs> No, absolutely so. It's just probably good. We can't all be making bread. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit. You then you've got two boys, Jack and Adam, and you took six years off. And the podcast follows you getting back to work. You're submitting a proposal and grant for a new film, and then through the phase of pre-production for a film called Faya. 
Well, the the subject is the Faya, but it's not necessarily the name of the film. And I wondered how different at the beginning the creative process was and the endeavor of the podcast, starting a podcast and, and documentary filmmaking. How different were the mediums for you when you first jumped in? I've been I've been surprised at how different podcasting is from film. Um, you really get a different kind of intimacy with um, audio work that you don't get as quickly with video. I mean, for one thing, the infrastructure is just so much bigger with film because it's more expensive, and so you have to apply for grants. I mean, unless you want to max out your credit card or you have to get funding from a broadcaster or something like that. It doesn't... It's very difficult. If people do it, but usually they go into debt, um, people do it like meaning they start filming a film without having the support in place. But um, podcasting, I mean, I just started doing it with so such a small investment, um, and I started doing it on my own. It could be very solitary. You don't need a crew. So in terms of infrastructure, it's very different. And in terms of the intimacy that you get with people right away when you're interviewing them, in audio only, I felt like people were much, their guard was already, was starting at a lower position than when I come at them with a camera. And how familiar were you with the world of podcasting? You know, I've realized more and more recently, it's a whole world. It's got its <laughs> yeah. own, its own yeah. inhabitants and its own rules and uh, languages and everything. Was it something that you had been deep in prior to beginning your own or, or did no, you just not jump? at all. No, I had not really. I, I mean, I've always loved radio, and I've tried over the years to do um, freelance radio work here in Canada. We have the CBC, and I've tried to pitch stuff to them regularly. And But it's just I didn't have my own equipment. The barriers to entry were very high. It's expensive to uh, get, or it was expensive to get audio editing software, those kinds of things. And now, I mean, I was able to buy my equipment for relatively little. I edited the whole first season using free software. Um, so the game has changed in that way. Uh, so I, w- I wasn't particularly familiar with the podcasting world, but I quickly became familiar with it. When I started, I, I was just listening to um, This American Life and Startup and thinking, oh, I, that's kind of like making documentaries. And were the um, technical elements familiar to you? I mean, the editing and the recording yeah. and all that felt felt you felt comfortable with that. Yeah, exactly. I think that part is where I started off with an advantage. I knew how to edit audio. I knew the basics of storytelling. Um, those kinds of things. And did you approach it in the same manner as far as storytelling goes? Did you choose the themes to explore ahead of time, or did they organically emerge with the development of the project? I would say they organically emerged, but I did think of things in terms of scenes and in terms of um, the structure of editing. So I would, you know, something would happen and I would think, oh, that that would make a good scene. Or, um, oh, that could be before this part and then that would add a little bit of tension here or those types of things. And so were you were you writing that out? I'm realizing I don't, I could ask the same question about documentary filmmaking. How much are you sort of scripting along the story um, or planning for next scenes based on what you're getting? How much is actually sort of scripted, not in um, a, an exact way, but in how you want it to progress and how things are fitting together, sort of in a produced sense? I think uh, the difference in documentary um, for me has always been that I, because I've applied for grants and got funding from broadcasters, you have to lay out a lot of it before you start. So you've already got a, um, an idea of the potential scenes, the potential. So a lot of times I've structured things out in my head in advance. And you kind of, you can expect to get moderately different things, but you also do have a certain expectation. There are very few films nowadays where it's just like, we'll just go there and we'll see what happens. <laughs> that just doesn't happen that much anymore because... And do of, you like that part of it? Do you like the not knowing and the having to respond, sort of reacting and acting? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't like it when I, when it's all scripted, uh, so to speak, beforehand. But then with the podcast, because I hadn't done that at all, and I didn't even know how many I was going to do, um, it was much more fly by the seat of my pants. 
And how much of the production is then in, in editing? Like once you've recorded something and you put it together, was there a lot of time spent there in actually creating yeah. the art? <laughs> a huge amount of time. I don't even want to think about how much time the editing took me because I I think it's also where I get lost creatively, um, lost in a good way. Like I just sit there and play with the material for hours and hours and I like it. I like doing that. I like that part of the process. It's like so, clay, right? You're, you're yeah, molding it. You're, you can squeeze exactly. it down, put it into something else. You're, you're making it into a shape. That's the yeah, process. Exactly. And I noticed sort of um, a couple things that I thought, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to ask her about that. That the description in the third person when there's the description of the episode underneath and also when you sign off that you say, um, see you soon or hope to see you soon. And I thought, oh, those are both like interesting elements. And I wonder if those were consciously chosen or again, they just sort of emerged. Uh, the writing about myself in the third person was conscious because when I was writing the text for the web, um, I... Um, it just felt too strange to write in the first person. And it at least, it makes it sound like it's a more professional endeavor because it's like there's people here working on this show. And, and they think this is about is, Tally. Yeah, exactly. The show is about Tally and she didn't write this kind of thing, even though it's just me writing it. Um, I think the sign-off hasn't been like, see you soon. It's been more like, thanks for listening. Um because I do feel a debt of gratitude to people who take the time to listen. Yeah, it, you got to um, go back and listen because it's thank you for listening and then see you soon. Yeah. In the, in or the see last you next time, yeah, maybe. See you next well, time. I guess yeah. I'm hoping that people will stay yeah. But I just thought that board. for me that was, um, and I wonder too, you know, it's such a new world out there, but that this is this seeing and connecting and relationship that I don't think was there in radio in the same way and in podcast in this, you know, we didn't exist in the same way, but that that struck me, that that's a new relationship that you have with your listeners. And we're going to talk about that a little later in the show, the relationships that you yeah. developed through this. Yeah. I want to talk now a little bit about the, the big universal questions that you sort of tackled. Um, you were clearly going through, you know, in a struggle at, at a number of levels. And I'm wondering if making this podcast helped you work through those questions and those struggles and help answer some of them. Uh, that's, I think that's the strange thing about it is that uh, it actually did. It surprised me because I started doing the podcast at a moment when I felt very conflicted and I... Um, I had been home with my kids and I just didn't even know what I wanted to be doing with myself anymore. Um, but I was, I, it was clear to me that I was, I was tired of only taking care of my kids. I just didn't know what my career would look like. And then over the course of doing the podcast, I just realized, Hey, I want to be doing podcasting. This is super exciting to me and it's flexing my creative muscles in different ways. So now I'm focused on that actually. It's funny because a couple of times you said, you know, the longest maternity leave ever. And I thought, okay, it was six years. It must have felt so long to her. But I don't <laughs> think from an outside perspective, an objective perspective, it was really the longest ever. So it was interesting. Every time you'd say that, I'm like, oh, yeah, she's, she's feeling like this. This It was obviously such <laughs> a huge um, shift in your identity and, you know, what you thought life would be and thought it should be and so that that just could come through again and again during the yeah. pod podcast I think I just didn't expect to do it I I just expected that I would have kids and then I would just go back to work and be working with kids and not um that they would just fit seamlessly into my life and that wasn't really the case but it wasn't even their fault it was just that I felt differently yeah. I thought that if anything they might okay maybe they would need me but I'm so driven I'll do I'll 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 feel a need to go back to work, but the change was in me and that I felt like I couldn't go back to work, and that was inconceivable before. I thought you made a, a subtle and incredibly poignant point early on about the distinction between the jobs of motherhood and the relationships. And when I first heard it, I was like, oh, my God, which way is she going with it? Like, is she what's she going to say about it? And and, <laughs> um, and, and I thought it, it gave such clarity to the experience that you don't understand prior to having children. Yeah. Um, 
that and that it's okay to make that distinction that it doesn't have to you don't have to say it's fun and some people might really love it actually when a guy you talk to really liked doing the dishes and it felt the yeah. achievement for him and I was like okay that is cool but th- that that's okay to not like all the jobs it doesn't yeah. mean that you're not happy to be doing it for the relationship yeah I think I actually just to give credit where credit is due I think that part actually came from a blogger called I think if it's the part that I'm thinking of it came from Ask Moxie and when I read it it also crystallized everything in my head like oh okay I'm not supposed to necessarily love every aspect of this um, it's the relationship that we're after and and oh yeah because she made the point about you know what you're outsourcing a lot of the jobs like people who hire babysitters or nannies like that's part of the, the what you if you can afford to, uh, it's wonderful to be able to outsource those things, the the least pleasant aspects of it. But then it's funny because you know on social media lately, I've seen all these articles now talking about it's all about quantity. You know, you have to, it's being there for your kids isn't about scheduling one on one time and having dates with your kids and all these kind of um, constructions that we make uh, to you know, when we're working and we don't have that much time and that kids will reveal personal things about themselves or insecurities that they may have at the moment you least expect it and they won't necessarily do it on cue. And so it's an important thing to just be there, you know, in, not in a, open I'm in still, those moments, right? When they're going to unpack yeah, like, and you don't know when they're going to unpack their bags. Yeah. And that it's all about being there all the time and doing these small little jobs and having them run errands with you and et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, I, because it you opens just, up the space know. for that, right? That those are the moments where it opens up the space for that. But it doesn't mean that those moments aren't super hard for women um, of of your generation and the generation before and the generation coming after. Yeah, I it's mean, funny. We watch doing groceries we just, with their kids. Yeah, you know? some people do, but not everyone. And we watched Chef recently. And we're like, oh, is this appropriate or not? But we watched it. The kids really liked it. And, and the little boy says that to his dad. And he's like, you know, you don't have to always do something like huge and grand when you come and pick me up. I just oh, want to yeah, be with you. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so one of the questions that definitely was coming up again and again for you and for the people that you were talking to in, in the show was identity. Um and you had said you'd spent so much time building who you were and sort of how you saw yourself and what others, how they saw you. And it seemed like that was something that you really processed through during the season was how you were seeing yourself and then how you thought other people were, were seeing you. I remember when you talked to your producer, Miriam, and she said, well, I didn't really think it was that big a deal you know, yeah. that, that you were gone. And I thought, oh, OK, like, wonder what Tally's thinking in this moment. Mm-hmm. Um. I just find that once you become a mother, your identity shifts also for everybody else around you, even in the moments when you don't think of, like when you go to the restaurant and um, the server or waitress or whoever will say, uh, okay, you know, what do you have to your husband and what do you have? And then, and what does mom want? And you think to yourself like, oh, is that how you see me? Like, why am, you know, why are you calling me mom? I'm not your mom. And I just feel like, it's so hard to know how everybody sees you, but that as soon as you become a mother, people immediately see that as a very big, big, big part of of yours. It is. I'm not being very well. Clear you right are, now, and I think it's it's reasonable that you're not being clear because it's so convoluted. I remember being pregnant, and people that I didn't know in the grocery store and things would touch my stomach, and I'm thinking, mm-hmm. well, you you can't just touch me, yeah. and just because I'm pregnant doesn't mean that you can touch me or tell me that I should or shouldn't have socks on my baby once the baby's born because the market's yeah. too cold and all these things. It really does open up your social identity in so many ways. And because historically we have ideas of motherhood and of its place in society and value or devalued. And I mean, I think my generation, one of our biggest complaints was that, yes, feminism did so much, but one thing it didn't do, and and of course it's a process as well, was say it's valuable to to be a mother. And and being a mother Mm -hmm. isn't just being a mother. And it's okay if you are educated and you aren't wasting your education by staying home. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and I was going to talk about this later, but let's talk about it a little bit now. We You talk about the generational differences in, of expectations and sort of you had said you'd grown up thinking 
you were supposed to be able to have it all. And I want to deconstruct that a little bit as to sort of what having it all would look like and in your mind when you were growing up. And the idea, too, I think uh, the, the I'm, I'm kind of on the borderline of a Gen X and, and the baby boomers. Mm-hmm. And I think we grew up feeling like you should do it all. And it wasn't even about having it all, <laughs> which seemed a little nicer, but that, okay, you should be able to do this, people. You need to, you know, graduate at the top of your class with a, a professional degree, and then you should be a really good full-time mom and be make partner in five well, years. It's, yeah, it's funny because have it all implies somebody's going to give it to you, whereas do it all means you're, you're going to make it work for yourself. And having it all is like something is owed to you um, and that you're going to take what is owed to you. Um, yeah, I think we thought that society would have had it, would have it figured out better. And so the infrastructure would be in place and um, the expectations would be that uh, each person in a relationship, both of the partners would share everything equally and um, that that all would be the expectation by the time that we grew up. Um, so we were all encouraged to think about our careers and do um, do everything possible to to reach a high level of professionalism. But then, when that happens, and then when you become a mother, well, then what happens? You know, then how do you divide those two things? Um, and it's interesting because in the last episode, I interviewed my husband's cousin, who's a very articulate millennial. And she says, well, I think that my generation, uh, she's 23, I think. She says that her generation um, definitely understands that they will have to make sacrifices and they know that it won't just be that easy and that they'll both have to, they'll both have to sacrifice. And then right after that, I read an article that said that millennials um, talk the talk and that they think that that there's going to be a bigger gender divide and that everything is going to be 50-50 before they have kids. But the studies have shown that once they start having kids, they slide back into more traditional gender roles also, and that ends up being the woman who sacrifices most of her career. It'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I don't know if that's salary-based also because it's still the case that men make more than women. And also a question of how much is value, right? I read something about... Um, the statistics of women and and giving up their career and the percentages and and was it really you know how much it was based on value and how well were these relationships and marriages doing for these couples that were both working and sort of that it, it's such a complex and interrelated topic it's hard to pull it apart and see what led to what mm-hmm. how much research were you doing before and during the podcast and reading books and articles on the topic um, I think because I was so into the topic at the time, I was reading a lot. Um, but I don't feel like the research necessarily made it into the podcast. It's mostly just that it would inform my way of thinking. And I would read things sometimes and go, oh, that is you know, really relevant or that really speaks to me. And so I would include stuff sometimes, you know, there'd be quotes. But um, I don't feel I feel like it was a really personal narrative. And so it wasn't really about statistics or things like that. You talked about an article, you referenced an article, uh, The Grand Shattering by Sarah Maguso. Yeah. And I, I was wondering, like, oh, last night I was thinking of this, I'm like, gotta ask Tally, like, when she read the article, and then if you've read it again, since since you read it the first time, because yeah. maybe you could talk a little bit about how you found it and what, what you got from it. It's funny because I, my husband brought it home from a trip. He, it was in the Atlantic. Oh, wait. No, it was in Harper's. Um, and he just brought it home. And it was, it was like a, I think it was a parenting issue or a motherhood issue. I don't remember. And I was just flipping through reading the articles. And when I read that one, I went, oh, my God, this thing is, just really speaks to me. Um, and I've read it since, and it still speaks to me. And I just, I've tried to find interviews with Sarah Manguso, she seems to be somewhat reclusive. I wouldn't say reclusive necessarily, but she's not the most heavily mediated person because there's not that much about her. But I read her book since then, um, which is mostly a diary of the first year, I think, of her baby. And so it's sort of musings when her baby's napping and um, reflections on her changing status and her changing feelings as a woman. And she's just are really um, powerful and edgy writer. 
Um, I loved I loved her book, and I loved that article. She said, I pre-mourned the end of my writing career and writer self throughout my pregnancy, but the crisis I anticipated never arrived. Now I merely feel like a writer who is a mother or a mother who is a writer, depending on my immediate circumstances. The fear that I'd stop being a writer, whatever that means, is gone. And I wondered if if you've come to a similar resolve of the shattered self. And it seemed to me when I read it, the shattered self, it happens in so many ways. But in the end of the article, she talks about it being actually the release of these old ideas and beliefs about what really mattered and what was contributing to society and how a person was valuable in that role. And I'm wondering if you had a, a similar experience with reading it. All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I'm here with Tally Abacassis of First Day Back Podcast. So, Tally, we're just talking a little bit about the big universal questions that your podcast was addressing and, and struggling with and kind of having conversation about. And one of those being the the identity. And I know in her article she talks about she came to a place where she realizes what she thought was the most important uh, identity and value in society sort of shifted and that she'd realized there had been some false beliefs around that. I'm just wondering where you had gotten to. Well, I also remember that she said she was very concerned that um, having kids would destroy her as a writer and that she would never be able to write again and she would write about insignificant things, but that um, becoming a mother also, it, it shattered her but it also um, rebuilt her in a completely different way. And I really related to that. And in my podcast, I related it to um, uh, this big community bonfire that I'd been planning on making a film about where these people build this structure and burn it down to the ground. And how initially I didn't totally understand the metaphor. And I thought like, why would they build something and burn it down? I guess it's just about the process. And I mean, I I got it on some level, but um, I related to it differently afterwards um, because, yeah, that when you – I just didn't think it would happen to me that when I would have kids I would feel like a different person. I thought I would absolutely feel like the same person but with kids. And so that part of myself um, and how I see myself now is very different. And I think that um, most of us don't understand that. Like even if we understand – the complexity around the shift in how our days are going to be and what they're really going to look like. And that you don't until you're in it really know what it'll feel like. But this sense of identity, that was something I talked about in an earlier interview with these gals from ProMom who are psychologists who are setting up a system to help women in maternity leave to prepare for that and then to work through it as far as being able to stay at work and yeah. or go back into work and be successful. And I think yeah, that how do you prepare for that? Oh that, that hasn't been addressed. Um, and people have no way of knowing the best way to kind of keep connected. They were talking about how women tend to separate completely from their job and then go back in and how that's a mistake for both the institution and for them as an individual to come back in. Because if you keep contact and you keep connected, you're much more likely that reentry is much more likely to be successful and sustainable. Yeah, well, what I found was that um, almost everybody that I know who, like me, took a long time off between, uh, you know, uh, between having kids and going back to work, um, almost everybody I know who took a lot of time had a harder time. So it's almost like getting back on the horse faster um, is is a probably a better way to do it. It's almost like you have too much time to think and too much time maybe to decide that you're a different person. But Another thing I've noticed is that a lot of women around me anyway, and that might just be a function of my demographic, um, have made a big change in their career since having kids. And part of it is, you know, a schedule thing and, and finding something that's more flexible. But some of it is also around living more meaningfully um, and finding a job that aligns better with your values after. A lot of women I know have become entrepreneurs after having kids. And again, some of that is scheduled, but some of it is just like they want to do something for themselves or they want to do something that has meaning for themselves um, more than they did before. And had you thought that you would go back sooner? Had it been your intention not to take so much time (laughs) off? I completely thought, I really just thought the whole thing would be uh, very seamless and I would just have kids and then I would go back to filmmaking and I would be a filmmaker with kids and I knew that that existed and that it was so... 
the fact that I didn't want to go back really surprised me because I had previously been a very ambitious person. Um, and, and then I, I just, I kind of, it's too negative to say wallowed, but I, cause I didn't wallow. I just, I just got stuck there though. Um, in, 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 I mean, in the podcast, I asked my husband, like, am I a stay-at-home mom now? Like, I didn't, I never intended to do that. Yeah, I noticed <laughs> that. I, I noticed you thought, would you, you, would you call me a stay-at-home mom? Would you, call, yeah, like, you what, call me a stay-at-home mom? What happened? You know, like, and that seemed like not a good thing, that if he did refer to you as a stay-at-home mom, he was like, well, no, it's not oh, no, 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 no. I saw myself. I just, I saw myself as a filmmaker on break, but at a certain point, like, well, are, am I a filmmaker anymore? I'm not making films, and I'm not even in that world. I, I so no, I didn't expect to do it. And uh, and I hadn't thought about that before. The big line between, yes, you're a mom and you're always a mom, but somehow this stay-at-home mom, that is a, a criticism in our society and sort of devalued in, in all aspects, even by, by the women who are, most women, I think, or a lot of women, women who are doing yeah, it. By women. I, I, the number one question women would ask me when I would see them, unless they were a stay-at-home mom, would be, oh, when are you going back to work? As if that was the only thing that mattered and that was the only thing of value. And because I, you know, taking care of kids is so much work, I would feel like answering back, I'm working right now. This is work. I mean, it's part of who I am and it's part of what I have to do, but don't look at this as not a challenge um, because it is and it's, and it's grueling and it's long and it's tiring. And sometimes it's very unrewarding because you don't have people at the end of the day saying, Hey, you did a great job. That was you know, a great meal you made. But I definitely feel there's judgment on people when they say they're a stay at home mom, including my, I have those, you know, prejudices myself. Um, but that said, I, I have a lot, a lot of respect for stay at home moms. And I think that, I just think well, they're if, if you if you like it, right? If you're enjoying it and you like it and you're thriving, and or you know, and you might like it more if it were more valued. That might make it easier. And I know Maybe. a lot of but you're the, also doing a job for society. You know, absolutely, <laughs> you're raising and, good people. Yeah, and when people I know when I I got out of grad school and people say, oh, you know, you're wasting your education, and I would think, well, really, because isn't it kind of a good thing if we have educated, well-educated people <laughs> raising our next generation? Yeah. I kind of thought that that might be a good idea. Yeah. And and so there is a lot of conflict here, obviously, between internally and externally, and that's, that comes out in the podcast. And you start yeah. to need this fear of going back, that what was your real desire, and had your brain atrophied, and will the kids suffer, yeah. and will, will everything be okay, and, and will you be missed or not missed, and how much? I know that <laughs> kind of runs through it. You're asking your kids, yeah, you know, and, and you're conflicted about what answer you want from them. Absolutely, that's a very good way to put it. Um, and so I was thinking about there's this question of identity, and there's also this question of shoulds, and um, who should I be, and, and who should I want to be. And uh, that came out, you did in, in your eighth episode, you did some interviews that I want to talk about, because that to me really illuminated that struggle that I thought you were going yeah. through within the entire broadcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing one of the women said was she was a stay at home mom and she said, you know, I see these gals in their suits and I think they've oh, got yeah. it all figured out and they've got it all right. And I was thinking of a book I read recently by Shonda Rhimes called The Year of oh, Yes. I've heard of that. Yeah. And she talks about Whitney Houston's wig and the struggle that we're struggling against this false expectation of who we should be and who other people are. And she oh. said when she was in high school, every day she got up an hour early to get her hair to look like Whitney Houston. And she said when she was an adult, she was in a hair salon getting her hair straightened, the gal sort of chuckled and she said, well, you know, girl, that was a wig. And she And that that was sort of her saving grace of this conflict, the mommy wars. And and should you be a stay-at-home mom or should you, you know, and be baking your own brownies or is it better to be in a high-powered job and, and walking around in your suit? And she she came to the conclusion, you know, no mom left behind. That we're all doing our best and making different choices, and it's it's all challenging. I feel like we keep saying that. Like I I was saying to somebody, um, you know, we should have like the mom high fives, like where you just have like, yeah, you got out the door this morning, high five. Exactly. You, know? <laughs> you um, but there is something about like women. We seem to do it to ourselves. Like we just can't stop judging each other. Um, 
Uh, and that's it comes just from judging ourselves, right? That was another thing that runs, oh, I think, clearly to an outside listener listening to the podcast, is that you are constantly questioning yourself and and judging yourself. And there are times when you might be um, projecting that onto other people and sort of thinking that they're seeing you that way, or even asking, like, "Do you see me like this?" So you're trying to figure out where is all this judgment coming from. Hmm. Um. Yes, <laughs> because I am absolutely trying to figure it out. And I, yeah, I guess it all comes back to that idea of judging myself for staying home all of a sudden when I hadn't really expected to be doing it. Um, well, and, and what about the should there? Because you had another gal you interviewed and she actually broke into tears and said she realized the opposite, right? That she wanted to be, well, maybe the same, that she wanted to be a stay-at-home mom and that that wasn't, she was letting down oh, yeah. her mother and her mother's yeah, generation yeah. and feminism. I thought it still fought so hard. To, yeah, yeah. I thought that was really fascinating that she felt like that was, that that was a, a letdown, that she shouldn't want that. Um, I thought that was fascinating. Um, yeah, because she's a millennial who's always strived really hard and felt like she wanted a career. And I mean, she was also dealing with, some career rejections. So I think that's also a safe place to think of yourself maybe when you're in a, a, a dark place, like, oh, this isn't working. My career is not going well. Maybe that would be where I should put my energy. Um, and, and how was that for you? Because I thought that too when I was listening to her and I thought, oh, it was one job she didn't get, right? And that yeah. was the one thing that kind of pushed her to tilt to then question, well, wait, you know, maybe I don't want to do what I was expected to do by others or even by myself. And and I wondered how much you experienced that as well. In And I want to talk about that, the sort of um, journey of, of going out and starting to get the film made. And, and how were you navigating through the rejections? And, and since you were coming from a place of not really being so certain of, of what you wanted your next steps to be, that I'm guessing that that was all amplified if there was an, a, re- a rejection, you know, that it meant more than just one person saying no, which in the film business, especially documentary is your business, life, is yeah. your life, right? Yeah, well, no, that's absolutely what happened. I mean, I, I kept wondering as the film was just not getting made, um, is it me? Uh, is it that people don't have faith in me anymore? I mean, I, I went and interviewed my old producer who said, well, the climate has changed, funding isn't the same, the money's not there, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I felt like I was coming back to a new reality. But um, I think I think the moment where it hit me the hardest was um, when I had gone to, I, I was, I was still like deep in mommy land and um, I received a call from a producer who kind of assumed that I was already back at work and he asked me to pitch for this. It was kind of a documentary ad campaign and I was so excited. It was, um, I hadn't, I haven't really done advertising and I've always thought that it could be really interesting to do short form documentary anyway. And it was a really exciting uh, company. And so I went in and I pitched for this, for this thing Uh, in a boardroom with executives and, um, you know, I had a babysitter at home and I felt like this really big line in my life, like, oh my God, I just came home. Like I was trying to look like I wasn't a stay-at-home mom. I was wearing my cool outfit. And anyway, I went and I did this thing and I thought it went so well and everybody acted as though um, it went really well. And the producer at the end shook my hand and went like, that was fantastic. And, you know, he made me feel like it had gone very well. And then um, I went home and I had heard from them that they weren't, the whole project wasn't going to happen in the end and that the client didn't decide to go with the, the, this concept to make a long story short, which is already a very long story. But, um, and then at some point on Facebook, I just saw this post that the producer had put on that where they were launching the campaign. And I realized that it wasn't that they hadn't done it. It was that they hadn't done it with me. And I had felt so confident walking out of that meeting and I'd felt like I'd nailed it. And first I was doubting my judgment, like, wow, did I, maybe, maybe it sucked and I didn't even realize, or was it just me? And they looked at me and went like, uh, we don't want this mom to do it. Like we need some young hip director, you know, we need somebody cool. Um, I mean, it's difficult, difficult also because in film in general and media, like youth is very fetishized and I feel like. I'm looking older, I'm, you know, all those things. So anyway, that was the moment where I felt like 
I don't know, is it because of me and where I am right now or is it just something else? And and how much do you think pre-kids and pre-family in a, a same situation you would have been taking it, um, asking those questions in that same way? Or, or Well, I wouldn't have asked the same question in the same way, but I... I probably would have felt crappy also. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no real way to get rejected and to feel <laughs> unless you're super confident and it can all just wash off your back. But um, I'm still human. And uh, I, yeah, it's not like I had outrageous confidence before, but the questioning would have been different. I would and have it wouldn't have been about, about the, the mom part being a negative. Because I'm thinking, you know... Well, it least, would have been more about the pitch, yeah. Yeah, because for our, our generation, we've got, we've got some good role models out there now, right? We have moms who are rocking it in the creative world, in film and in business and in sort of all areas. And we still are very aware of their struggles, but I think you can see that you can still be a mom. You know, you were talking about Patty Smith. <laughs> she struggles, but she's still super cool, no matter yeah. how old she is or the fact that she's a mom, right? She's not going to get turned down because of that. So We do have models, but I do find that, and it's not like I want everybody to be talking about their kids, but I do find that so often you'll look at a woman in a position of influence or a successful woman, in, especially in the arts, I would say, and after the fact, you hear that they have kids, mm-hmm. and I often think like, "Oh, and they have kids!" And like they I, have kids. I wouldn't have imagined that. They just seem like their career was their life. And I know celebrities now. There's a lot of focus on their kids, and they, you know, Us Weekly will have pictures of so and so shopping with their kids and da da da. But I do feel, in a general sense, that people don't talk about it, and that they know that talking about their kids or being a mother or whatever will make them lose a bit of credibility. Yeah, it diminishes them. And I hadn't thought of it that way is perfect that you've just framed it and they have kids. Yeah. And, and you kind of talk about that in the podcast about this sense that you're struggling with of straddling these two worlds. And I'd thought about that and I thought, oh, you know, well, maybe could she be walking in both versus straddling? But you've just said why it's incredibly hard or impossible to do that at this juncture. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm struggling with it myself because now I'm trying to move into another subject for my podcast. I'd like to do something else. I'd like to not focus on my story. And um, I feel like now I've got this thing where I'm going to always be talking about motherhood and my kids. And um, you're, you're like a, a child actress that then got labeled. <laughs> yeah, only no, do these no, but I feel like to get credibility out, I need to be outside of that a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, sure, I have. Or credit, you could credit. just be the total expert on that. I mean, something that um, Warren Buffett said, and he said, "All you have to be is the top of your game, whatever your game is. You're all, oh, nice. you're, yeah. That's the you're still going to be on the private jet with everybody else. <laughs> uh, it, it doesn't matter what you do. You just have to be at the top of it. So you could be that person. But I want to talk a little bit about that world that that you were in and that you're getting back into, and and the kind of other world you're straddling, and about the freelancing aspect of it. Yeah. Um, Because you expected you had expected to go back to work sooner. You know, you had these ambitious goals. Um, I'm wondering in that world, uh, the person that you hope to be and sort of what you wanted to achieve. I know you wanted to get a film into Sundance. I'm wondering if that's still a goal. (laughs) I'm so embarrassed. But why? That, yeah, that's my question. Why? Why are you embarrassed that you said that? That seems like a very well, appropriate and reasonable and reachable goal for a documentary really. filmmaker. I know, but it's it's because it's assuming that my films, I'm embarrassed because it makes the presumption that my films are in that kind of a league. And uh, that's not okay, really. So there's another question of sort of feminism and, and being a mom and the humility that's sort of in taking the back seat. Yeah, that I think is entrenched in in being a mother and also for women still. I know it's funny because I was um, somebody else said this to me recently where I was going to do uh, a workshop on something, and a friend of mine said, "Why are you doing a workshop? You know all this stuff already." And I said, "Well, I just want to get better at this and this and this." And she said, "That's a woman thing, like the feeling that you just you need to improve yourself because you're not good enough yet." And I don't see as many men going to workshops and trying to improve their skills in X, Y, Z area. And I don't know if that's true, but I do think there's a psychology there of 
Um, oh, I absolutely do. I'm That's not good of, at, I, I'm, yeah, or, or like, or what was the other thing? It's sort of shame, doing? right? It's this shame-based thing. And that we certainly better not toot our own horn. And if we are, we better be darn sure that, you know, we are at the top of the game. And so if we're not sure, then maybe we better take some more workshops and more classes before we try to get out there and, and yeah. act or there, as there was an art, was an article or a podcast I was listening to where they were talking about um, job applicants for this particular job. And they were saying that men will easily apply for a job that they're not qualified for. Uh, and women will look at a job that they are qualified for and think, oh, I'm not qualified for that job. And, so. and it's not its not some erratic, unreasonable neuroses that women are doing that from. My daughter actually did her pro- her project last year um, on intolerance about the differences between men and women. And one of the studies she came upon was, you know, if you give a resume and you put a woman's name on top and you put the man's name on the other one and give it to people blind, they'll think, you know, this is someone who exact same qualifications and who has had a lot of success. They'll like the man more and think he's probably a good guy, whereas they won't like the woman and think she's probably not a very nice person. Oh, wow. And that they will hire, you know, there were just sort of all of these Mm. proven discrepancies in people's attitudes towards women and men in the workplace. I mean, as you said before, you know, women are still making 70, per, 70 cents on the dollar. So these aren't coming from sort of um, neurotic insecurities. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, and, and it's, I'm sure in the, your daughter's study or, or the project that she did, um, I'm sure a lot of the people who are judging the woman harshly were women also. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about the relationships that you created um, while you were doing the podcast and what those were like. I know it was a collaborative venture um, among the people, the creative people on your team. Um, oh, the, not very much, by the way. So that was <laughs> I just think a it sounds bit. like it, but um, not really. And so how about relationships you developed with the uh, interviews you did during episode eight? Um, and, and also your listeners. Yeah. Well, I think because of social media, the relationship with the listeners is much more personal and super nice. Um, you know, people write to me on Facebook, they email me, they Twitter at me, um, Twitter at me. I think it's tweet at me, (laughs) but anyhow, um, yeah, people are able to engage directly and tell me their stories. Um, so I feel like, yeah, there've been some very nice, um, I wouldn't say relationships because it's maybe they're not. Well, real maybe they're short relationships. Yeah, interactions at least. And and are you commenting back? Are you having dialogue with people sure, when yeah, they comment yeah, yeah. and no, discussion? Absolutely. absolutely, I'm really interested to hear people's take and their stories. Um, yeah, no, I love it when people. <laughs> I mean, if you just send it out there and you never hear anything back, it's kind of you see download numbers, but. I don't know. It feels like it could be a bunch of robots. Um, it's nice to connect with faces and hear that you've connected with somebody. And one of the people that you interviewed was this uh, woman, Lillian. And I think was she 97 years oh, yeah. old? Like yeah. I just, I listened to that part five times. I'm like, I love Lillian. I know. You know what and, she said, which I, I, I didn't get on tape and then I couldn't get her to say it again. She said, you know, my age, you marry a man you're a nurse and a purse. <laughs> and then you have sex here and there yeah. if you're lucky. Um, but but sex, she she was fabulous. How did you find her and and um, how did you feel after you'd spoken to her? She was, she was a woman at my husband's granny's uh, retirement community. Um, and she was just somebody who my mother-in-law said, you have got to talk to this woman. <laughs> She's amazing. And... Um, what was interesting to me was that I thought, oh, that's a great idea. I'm going to go to the retirement community. I'm going to interview all these women, and they're all going to have they're all going to have interesting things to say to me about missed opportunities in their lives, um, and you know, go out and work because I I always wanted to work, but I couldn't. I think because my grandma my grandmother always wanted to be a writer, and she was not able to be a writer because she had to. It's different. Her, her sacrifice was because she had to help support the family, but I just felt like that was where. The, t- the interviews would probably go and almost every, I mean, I didn't speak to everybody and it wasn't, it's anecdotal. It's not some kind of scientific sample, but so many of the women just said, no, I stayed home with my kids and that's what you should do because you know, they're your kids. <laughs> and then I felt really crappy about it and I felt like, Oh, 
And I wasn't going to use any of the tape because I felt like, oh, this is not saying anything new. It was only when I interviewed my uh, husband's cousin, the millennial, where I felt like, oh, these two talk off each other a little bit. That's, that's an interesting comparison. And Lillian loved, I mean, she also loved being at home, it seemed. Yeah. She was not conflicted. And then I wonder if they romanticized it too, because, mm. you know, loving staying at home, sure, as an idea, but as we all know, like the day-to-day is not always the it's something. No, it, <laughs> I don't it, know. It can, it's, it, a lot of it is really hard and, and very hard and unfulfilling draining. and draining, yeah. absolutely draining. I was I was amazed when one of the the men that you interviewed in episode eight said he liked doing the dishes because that felt satisfying and fulfilling. He was a writer and like that was concrete and he could get something done. And I thought, oh yeah, my gosh, we really are different. You well, know? I can imagine he's a writer. Like you're sitting there staring yeah. at the blank page or the blank computer yeah. screen and like, ah, uh, it's so hard. And when you write something, is it really done? I yeah. don't know. Maybe I could retweak it. And that doing the dishes is a really concrete task yeah, with a beginning, yeah. middle, and an end. So it's all perspective, right? It's all personal, mm-hmm. a personal place where you are and, and relative and perspective. So I want to talk a little bit about where you are now. Um, if you had gotten from the project what you had hoped um, in creating it and producing it. And I'm wondering if you've listened to it from the beginning through. No. Okay, that was my first question. No. Some friends came over for dinner the other night, and they said, oh, we just went on a road trip, and we listened to the whole thing from beginning to end. And I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) I can barely even listen to it at all because it's just hard to listen to yourself. Um, So do you anticipate doing that? At some point, sure. I need a little more distance. Need more more distance first. Yeah. I I mean, it's still kind of recent. Like, the last episode is in August, which is just a few months ago, and it still feels... I still feel very naked with it. Like I, you know, it's one thing to put it out there and I have the hardest time when people I know listen, like it's one thing to present it to strangers, but when people I know say, Oh, I heard this episode and like they're friends of mine and I thought about this. And I mean, obviously my close friends, it's fine, but I, you feel very exposed. Um, So I haven't listened to the whole thing, but I feel in a very good place because I feel like it really rekindled my passion for storytelling. I just, uh, and, and I'm super into audio storytelling now. And I feel like that's where I want to focus my energy. Um, it's a very different beast from filmmaking. It's much more, uh, I wouldn't say solitary cause that makes, it's kind of got a negative for sound. sound, but, um, it's something I can do on my own. Uh, I, it suits, like, I just love the editing where you just sit with their headphones and listen and rework material, um, and yeah, it's, it's very, very surprisingly different, the kind of information you need to convey things. And, um, yeah, I, I really, I love it. So I want to continue doing more podcasting. And you had started the podcasting really, you said just to flex your documentary filmmaking muscles. And so yeah. are you surprised that now it's something that is sort of inspiring create creatively and, and yeah. drawing in? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I did not know what I was setting out to do initially. I mean, I knew I, I was going to do a few, maybe I would do three, how many, six, I don't know. I didn't really know. Um, also didn't know how the film was going to turn out. If, if the film was going to get funded, then I felt like I would have to stop when the film was in production because I wouldn't be able to do both. My husband said, no, you absolutely would want to be recording during that time because that's when there will be a lot of tension for you. So, I was kind of going to wait and see how that played out. Um, I really, really honestly didn't know. So I just did it as a kind of creative project and I didn't anticipate that it would uh, present this real fork in the road where um, I could suddenly think like, oh, maybe I should be working more in audio. I just thought it would be something to get me back on, back to thinking in that way. And so you say at the end of, of um, I want to talk about a couple of things you say at the end of the, the last episode, but one is a new project you're thinking of starting about new um, first days back in all yeah. different areas. Is that something that's still a possibility? Yeah, yeah I, I'm still looking for stories. It could be uh, somebody's first day back from an accident, first day back. I mean, I, I feel like the theme is pretty rich, first day back from... Um, 
You had talked about Afghanistan or yeah, after be, a divorce. I have this massive list of things that just grow up. Oh, I mean, since I heard that and I knew I was going to interview, I think I probably thought of like six a day. I'm like, oh, that could be really I know, I know. I just it's, saw this documentary um, called Tig, and it was about the comedian Tig Notaro, who mm-hmm. I really love. And she uh, had this basically the whole thing I realized it's a first day back because she's trying to get her first day back on stage after having breast cancer. Um, so, I mean, it, I think it's a pretty rich theme because it's not just a first day. It's a first, you're trying to get back to who you were before. So, um, yeah, good luck with that. And you're, you're a different person. Yeah. 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 Maybe where you, that'll be interesting where you come, come from that idea. Um, and, and also you talk about the settling on the story um, that you're telling about yourself, and you kind of comment that you much rather tell other people's stories. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm, but you do come to sort of the story that you are telling about yourself, and I wonder if you sort of now you have a little distance from that, or you know, just the same perspective on where you got with that. Uh, I don't think I exactly know what you mean. So you say, I think you come to a place where you you end the podcast, but you also then read a bit of a narrative that you've written. Oh, oh, and oh. you had mentioned about that at one point, kind of in that episode, that maybe you were wanting to be a stay-at-home mom um, in your yeah. relationship to your mother well, I, and I, in dedication I, to her. And so then I'm just wondering about where you came to what was the story that you were felt you had I still told believe about that. yourself. I mean, yeah, I I, um, I feel like doing the podcast enabled me to have some distance and enabled I, it forced me to think about what I was doing in a much deeper way than I would have normally. And it, it was a really big deal in my life that my mom died right before I had my kids. And my mom was a huge presence in my life, super important, and I admired her, and she was a stay-at-home mom. And um, we were just very close. We would speak a lot in the day. I mean, it was, I don't know, as an adult, it, it seems strange to some people, but we were very, very close and she died. And it was a really big heartbreak for me that she wasn't able to see my kids, to meet my kids and to be involved in their lives. And I feel like maybe that decision to stay home with my kids, that was not something that I'd anticipated doing you know, I think a lot of times you repeat your own childhood a bit, um, or you want your kids to have the same childhood that you had. And so I feel like I became a stay-at-home mom momentarily so that I would be like my mom, and it, and I connected with her. It was a way for me to connect to her to live what she lived um, and to feel close to her, and that was not something that I had anticipated, but it was something that did strike me in pulling back from my life and looking at it. I'm guessing that only seems strange to people who haven't had that experience or any of us who have had the experience of having our parents pass away before our children are born. We don't think it's strange at all. Oh, did you have that as well? I I did. Yeah. Um, And so I want to end with something that another of your um, interviewers said, interviewees said in um, episode eight. It was Brian Gresco, and he talks Mm -hmm. about because the whole, you know, he's he's kind of contemplating this whole struggle that you had throughout the, the podcast and many of us have throughout our, our childbearing years uh, and beyond is this balance, work-life balance and balance of identity of internally in the, in the, as a parent and then externally in the world, separate from that. And he talks about the payoff and the results and a contribution to the world versus intrinsic value. Yeah. Which I thought, and he, yeah, and he talks about how um, he's bringing a, a kid into the world, and that's yeah, that's a huge. I love that interview. Also, um, yeah. he, I loved how he said, you know, when you're a writer, also people always say to you like, oh, what have you written? You know, you're a writer. <laughs> okay, sure. And then he said, you know, and somebody's a doctor, and you say to them, and they, that you. You ask them what they do, and they say they're a doctor. Nobody says, "Oh, where do you doctor?" <laughs> you know? um, sorry, but to get back. No, to your no, question. that is the point. And then exactly, and as a parent, no one you say, "Oh, I'm a, a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad." I don't think they ask you anything. <laughs> yeah, they assume your life is boring. But then he took that next step and said, "But what he had found was sort of this, this true and for him deep intrinsic value in what he was doing." Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I just kind of wondering, and now you are kind of going to jump a little deeper into the work world and, 
And have you come to sort of some internal balance as, as far as these two worlds? Uh, I don't know. Um, if not, we can check back in. You know, yeah, <laughs> I don't. That's project. I don't. I think that I'm right now a happier person than I was um, a few years ago. Uh, I feel more like myself than I did before. Um, I guess that's why I use the term lost a bit. When I say sometimes I got lost in maternity leave because I, you know, you're yourself and you build towards this thing for years and years and I'm thinking about my career and then to have it just be on ice for a while. um, I don't know. I I definitely feel more like myself and I feel happier. Um, Strangely, I don't always feel better with my kids. Like I feel like people always say, oh, but, you know, when you're away from your kids more, you have so much more patience for them when you see them because, um you haven't been with them as much. And I feel sometimes like it's the opposite because I'm with adults so much more now when my kids pull tantrums and stupid behavior, I feel like, you know, I don't need this. <laughs> like I can be with adults. I don't have to be with you guys. Um, well, then I think again, those are people that aren't in that situation because yeah, I know no, my kidding. husband travels a lot for work and, and it's much harder for him for reentry when he when he's exactly been gone sometimes and then it is back hard. because when you're out in the world you're dealing with fairly rational people who respect exactly. you and, and you're dealing your authority. With, thank you. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Because when so. you suddenly are dealing with irrational people and you feel like this is not necessary. <laughs> anyway, I think that's um, normal. Yeah. Well, yeah. it was wonderful talking with you, and thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview, Tally. And it was wonderful to talk to you, Ellie. It really, um, yeah, it was really fun. And um, I'm sure everyone's going to be excited to hear about the next project, so we'll have to have you back on the show. Sure. Thank you so okay. much. Thanks. <laughs>